1: Hello, everybody. Welcome to the program. I am, indeed, Russ Yarrow. I'm General Manager for Corporate Affairs at Chevron and also a, a member of the Commonwealth Club's Board of Governors, a great organization. And if you're not familiar with it, uh, I hope you get more familiar with it. Uh, Chevron is proud to sponsor this program tonight, and it's my pleasure to introduce our guest, uh, Dan Yergin, uh one of the world's foremost experts on energy and also a gifted storyteller. Um, Twenty years ago Dan published the prize. I'm sure many of you have read it. It won the Pulitzer Prize and it shaped the way many people thought about energy. His new sequel, The Quest, eloquently describes the rise of China as an energy powerhouse, the Arab Spring, prospects for new fuels and new technologies, and how the world's $65 trillion economy will meet the demand for energy. The New York Times recently described Dan as America's most influential energy pundit and called the Quest encyclopedic in its ambition, searching, impartial, and alarmingly up-to-date. I know it kept Dan up many late nights, keeping it up-to-date. If anything, said the Times, it's an even better book than the prize. And I think currently uh, on Sunday it was number four on the New York Times bestseller list. Over the next hour, Dan will offer his insights on the global energy system and then join a conversation with Greg and our live audience here at the Commonwealth Club. It's now my pleasure to welcome Dan. Thank you.
2: Thank you very much, Russ. Those are very kind words. I appreciate it. I'm uh, very pleased uh, to be here. There are many friends that I've known over the years who are here who I'm happy to see but I'm sp- particularly happy to be here because uh, this Commonwealth Club is known as perhaps the premier uh, forum for lectures in the United States, and uh, its reputation is around the country. So I'm very pleased to be part of it and certainly part of that uh, Climate One uh, program. And just listening to the, uh, the list of the topics you have, I sort of felt kind of it's – that's kind of I should come and listen because that's what I, I mean. It's all about what I'm going to talk about tonight, but I was also very amused to find out that I belong to the College of Dams, which is uh, part, of, uh, part of the program. So uh, it is uh, very meaningful to be here and have a chance to kind of share what I learned over the years as I was writing this book. To start off, I go back to the prize. I really, a, f- a few days after Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait in, uh, 1990, I penned the final words to the prize. And I wrote, ours is a century in which every facet of civilization has been transformed by the modern and mesmerizing alchemy of petroleum. Ours truly remains the age of oil. Well, that's two decades ago. Uh, oil remains the most important, world's most important commodity, clearly very central to world economy, to world politics. But so much has changed in these years, uh, and I just encountered it as I was writing this book. Obviously, the uh, collapse of the Soviet Union and the emergence of uh, these various independent states in the Caspian and Central Asia, uh, what uh, Russ alluded to, the rise of uh, China. Uh, China, when I finished the prize, was still actually exporting a little bit of oil, and now it's the most dynamic element in, in the world energy scene. Uh, the emergence of shale gas, seemingly over almost overnight, although not quite overnight. Oil, which was supposed to be $20 a barrel, going to $147, $27 a barrel. And then this year, the Arab Spring and uh, Fukushima. So these were just how much has changed. And then the whole focus on renewables and new technologies. So the canvas that I set out to uh, work upon in this book was even broader than that of the prize. And it covers not only energy, but the entire uh, – not only oil, but the entire energy span, natural gas, electric power, renewables, uh, climate change, efficiency. I would also say that um, uh, the story is populated by a uh, very interesting set of characters who in one way or another carry part of the story. And uh, I just was thinking about a few of them as I was uh, preparing my remarks. I was struck by uh, – several of them are Californians. One is a man named uh, Ari Hagen-Smith, who was a professor of chemistry at Caltech. Uh, he was an expert fascinated by understanding flavors of onions, uh, garlic, wine. Uh, he's also the person who discovered actually the active agent in marijuana, which uh, achieved a certain sort of uh, uh, immortality for him. But uh, he was working on what his favorite subject in 1948, which was really – he was fascinated by to understand what gave pineapple the flavor it had. And he went outside in his lab one afternoon, I suspect to have a cigarette, and uh, instead of meeting the beautiful fresh air that had brought him to Southern California, he got caught in what he called that stinking cloud of uh, smog. And he was the one who cracked the code because there was a great debate what caused smog. He became known as the uh, father of smog. Um, He always would say, he wasn't happy about it, he would always ask who's the mother of smog. But when Ronald Reagan signed the legislation creating the California Air Resources Board, uh, he appointed Hagan smith as the first director. And I think you could take a kind of almost a straight line from that afternoon in Pasadena in 1948 up through the CARB and up to um, uh, the CARB becoming the regulator of the global automobile industry uh, to the electric cars that we now see coming on our roads. So one very interesting character. Uh, uh, another one is Haider Aliyev, probably uh, not uh, na- a name known to a few people, but he was a Soviet KGB general who uh, went into the Soviet Politburo, got thrown out by Mikhail Gorbachev, sent back to Azerbaijan. His life was over. Then the Soviet Union collapsed, and he went from being a Soviet man to becoming a, um, a native son of Azerbaijan President and more than anybody else is responsible for the reintegration of Central Asia uh, into, into the world economy and world energy. Also, a uh, very interesting char- character, well-known to everybody, of course, is Albert Einstein, but I focus on one particular period in Einstein's career when he graduated from university and, not unfamiliar to people today, couldn't get a job. Uh, he was doing tutoring. In fact, he was doing free tutoring as a, as a trial offer to people. Uh, his, so bad was the situation. His father wrote a letter to another scientist saying, can you hire my son? He gets, he feels his career has been permanently derailed. Well, Einstein finally got a very easy job in the, uh, that was not taxing in the, in the patent office in Bern. Uh, didn't have much to do, so over ten weeks he wrote five papers that changed the world. One of them was a paper he got the Nobel Prize for in photoelectricity. It took a half a year from that paper to get photoelectric uh, Cells up on satellites in response to the Soviet Sputnik. And here we are 106 years later, still rolling out solar power. I'll just mention two others who were very interesting, two Californians. One, I can assure you that this is the only book on energy that will ever be written that includes the worst moment in Ronald Reagan's career as an actor. And what was that moment? It was when he couldn't get work and he finally uh, took a job doing stand-up comedy in Las Vegas fronting a singing group called the Continentals. And he thought his career was done, he comes back, his agent's on the phone, says, Ronnie, got a job for you. to so become the spokesman for General Electric. And uh, from that, uh, of course, before he was a champion of freedom, he was the proponent of the all-electric home. And there's a wonderful picture in the book of him and uh, Nancy uh, demonstrating this amazing new invention called a portable radio. Now, the reason I have Reagan in the book is because I want to use that really as a way of talking about how the U.S. became electrified as a society. It's quite remarkable. You look at the ads at the time, and there's Nancy Reagan talking about her amazing uh, electric servants, a vacuum cleaner. I mean, it was, you know, it's, it was, for most Americans, this was new after World War II. And our elect- what we went through in the 50s is what you have going on in a country like China today. Our electricity demand was growing at 10 or 11 percent a year. Uh, just as it is in China today, and it raising all the questions about what is an, an ever more electrified society and how do you manage it. Uh, the last character I'd just like to mention, because he's also emblematic, is a person that a few of you may know in the room, a man named Jim Delson. Uh, Jim spent New Year's Eve 1981 uh, atop a wind turbine in a blizzard in the Tehachapi Pass trying to get it up By midnight, so he could get the tax credit before they expired at midnight. (laughs) He said, there has to be a better way to do this. So what he does is he flies uh, off to uh, Holland. Uh, A guy in Denmark hears he's there. A guy picks him up in his plane, takes him to Denmark, and he sees these Danish wind turbines. And they work much better than the ones that he was trying to put up. And so they be, he starts the importation of Danish wind turbines, which became uh, kind of a bedrock for the California wind industry in the 1980s and into the 1990s. And so part of my task in this book was to ask, where do things come from? And so if you say, where does the modern wind industry come from, I would say it comes from the marriage of sturdy Danish agricultural machinery and California tax credits. And thus, it's the birth of the industry. But now those are the personalities, but, but there are three big questions or themes that I deal with in the book. The first is uh, the one that Russ uh, alluded to. How do we – right now we have a $65 trillion world economy. When we get out of the current economic difficulties we're in, we could in 20 years or so, a couple decades, have a $130 trillion world economy. question is, where is the energy going to come from? How are we going to do it? How different is the energy mix going to be then than it is now? So that's one big question. A second question is the question of energy security. Uh, how do you uh, assure security in, in the face of such traditional threats, as disruptions, uh, kind of the problem we saw in Libya, not writ large, written medium with the disruption there. And uh, what uh, was described by the CEO of Sony as the bad new world of, uh, of cyber vulnerability. And he described that after the cyber attack on their website, uh, which cost them about $170 million. And it's something that preoccupies the energy industry. I know people like my friend Peter Schwartz work on these type of issues. And they are still, you know, people trying to get their arms around it. And the third, of course, and in a way it's reflected in this whole lecture series, which is how does the world's energy objectives get, uh, reconciled with environmental objectives. And there's not a single answer, but it's a very big question. So as I was writing this book, I found myself one way or the other. I was coming up against these questions uh, all the time, and they shaped the narrative. Uh, certain big themes were very clear. One is the continuing persistence of geopolitics. Geopolitics, of course, was at the center of what I call the Caspian Derby, the battle for competition uh, and position in post-Soviet Central Asia and the Caucasus. It's a fundamental issue in the relationship between China and the United States. Energy has a strong geopolitical cast, and I think when we turn to discussion, we'll talk about that. Uh, one way or the other, uh, Iran's nuclear program will have a major impact on world energy markets. At the very least, it will stimulate a nuclear arms race uh, in, in that region. And, of course, we've seen uh, an intensification in the last few days of ratcheting up of the tensions in what's that already tense relationships in that region. Um, in the, you know, we talked about the Arab Spring. It's now the Arab Spring has uh, many, many months have passed. We're, and it, we're in a period of the post-Arab Spring. And one of the consequences is the upending of the strategic balance that uh, has underlay relative stability in the Middle East and, uh, and thus the stability of energy supplies. No one knows how it will play out. After all, as it unfolded, it was a big surprise. But we do know that the existence of this youth bulge, this large group, young people, which was really the trigger, people whose expectations are not being met, uh, who are, who are not seeing the opportunities that they are led to believe should be there, that is going to persist and is going to continue. And there's a wonderful chart in the, uh, in the quest that shows, the age distribution in the industrial countries, and then the age distribution in the Arab, in the Middle East, and you just see this huge bulge, and you realize that that's going to be a kind of fundamental question. Now, the significance uh, of geopolitics for energy is accentuated by the, the new demand, and I think although, you know, you go back and extrapolate it, I think it's still in a scale that just was not imagined a, a decade ago. I don't think it was until 2004 that people really woke up to it when we started to see changes in the global market. And it is of course what is coming from what used to be called the developing world, but today is called emerging markets. And I kind of dub it the globalization of energy demand. Uh, and the changes are quite striking. In 2000, uh, Two-thirds of world oil demand was in the developed world. Today, half of, of oil demand is in the developing world, and that number is only going to increase. And, of course, the focus is, because of the scale, is on China. People in real estate talk about the build-out of an office building or a suite of offices. In China, we're seeing the build-out of an entire country. Uh, Twenty million people a year moving from countryside to city, they need Housing, They need jobs, they need transportation, and all of that requires energy, and it's a very urgent issue. And China already exceeds the United States as the world's largest energy uh, consumer. And I know you'll have Bill Ford here at your series, and it'll be very interesting to talk to him about how they see the uh, automobile market uh, uh, developing in China. But if you go back to 2000, 17 million new cars were sold in the United States, less than 2 million in China. That's, in, that's 2,000. So you go to 2010, 17 million new cars in China, 11 million in the United States, and something think that 17 million is going to be 20 or 25 or even 30 million, and although how they'll cope with it in the streets is a very big question. But it says that uh, energy, uh, oil, is and the question of whether there are competition for resources or that competition, uh, there's a collaboration and interest, common interest in stable markets, how that balance will work will be very important. And in the context of what is the single most important relationship the United States has in the rest of the world, that with China, and of course, for China, its single most important relationship is with the United States. I talk about uh, technology, and uh, in a way, it is a. a, a on Planet uh, Money, the uh, NPR show, uh, talked about the the geeky quality of the Quest. And uh, it's – because I'm fascinated that innovations that were dreams or theories or, to use the Silicon Valley term, science experiments in one decade, two decades later or three decades later become part of the uh, uh, our energy system. Uh, shale gas, uh, great story about how it was developed. There's really one man who drove it for about 15 years, and the people working for him – his name was George P. Mitchell – said, George, you're crazy. You're wasting your money. And his answer to them, well, it's my money, and if I want to waste it, I will. And he pushed the technology, and today it's 30 percent of our total natural gas uh, production. We're seeing ad- the advances in uh, in tight oil or shale oil in the United States, uh, in off the coast of Brazil in what's called the pre-salt, and in the sort of extraordinary development of the oil sands in Canada, uh, this tremendous resource, that you're sort of seeing a shift in the geopolitics of oil to some degree uh, in back to the Western Hemisphere in a way that was not anticipated. Of course, the technological innovation is concentrated and evident in the rebirth of renewables, and that is a term I use because those who are in the renewable business know that there was that boom in the 70s and 80s, and then it passed into what those who survived it called the valley of death, because it was very tough, oil prices were down, interest was down, but it's only around 2000 when you start to get, on a global basis, the rebirth again. And interestingly enough, I think it's really Germany which is really the the driver of it and that starts it. But now, of course, uh, in the U.S., about 2004 is when Silicon Valley venture capital discovers uh, the energy business, and enormous amount of effort and resources of going into it, and you know, so it's as how to get the kind of right balance to think about it, to realize that these businesses are becoming big business. Wind is a big business. A wind turbine today is not the same as a wind turbine in the Tehachapi Ridge in, uh, in 1981, about $120 billion spent on renewable electric generation last year. But it's still small as part of the overall energy business. And, you know, but on the other hand, this great bubbling is considered all across the way – And a lot of people are working on the second generation of biofuels. My own impression is that people are finding it more difficult and challenging than they might have thought, and it's taking longer. And it's partly that you do see in the energy business, for the most part, it's not like Twitter. Things don't happen overnight. It just takes long both to develop it and then to have them become part of the energy mix in a serious way. The other major theme I'll just talk about for a second is, of course, although we'll talk about it more, are the environmental considerations and those that are challenging the notion of a future based upon fossil fuels. Climate change clearly pushing many countries directly or indirectly towards either low-carbon natural gas or no-carbon wind-solar to deal with it. Uh, The accident at Fukushima has thrown what was called up through March 10th, the nuclear renaissance uh, into question, and we have more of a nuclear patchwork right now. And then local pollution is such a problem in a country like China that it's driving policy uh, increasingly. Um, one of the things I did is I got really interested in where did climate change come from as an idea uh, and how did it go from being an idea to being something that is now such a big part of uh, of thinking on uh, and energy policy and economic policy, political And I was going to write one chapter on it, and I found myself actually writing six chapters because it was so interesting, and to find that it really started in the Alps with a fascination with glaciers, with the discovery that once upon a time there had been an ice age, and the fear that an ice age would come back. And then you have to go through a century until you get to uh, a scientist at uh, Scripps uh, Oceanographic Institute, uh, uh, Dr. Keeling, who started to actually measure carbon in the atmosphere. So it's a fascinating story about how science turns into public policy. Now there are two big themes that also that I focus on. Uh, one is um, is the subject of the fifth fuel conservation energy efficiency. And like many, I owe a debt to, uh, many of you know, uh, Lee Shipper who was at Berkeley and at Stanford, recently passed away, who was really one of the most creative p- people and I really feel the need to acknowledge him in terms of thinking about energy efficiency. And like many others I learned from him, he asked the question, how is it that two countries can have the same standard of living but have different energy intensities? And that really sort of dramatized the potential for efficiency. And, uh, you know, people think we haven't made progress on it, but of course our energy efficiency has actually doubled since uh, the 1970s. And I think it's a very reasonable goal to say doubling again. I end the book on the subject of what kind of cars are you all going to drive in 10 years from now? And you'll get some answers, I think, in the course of the, uh, of the rest of this series. And I go back to – there's a painting in the book of Henry Ford uh, having dinner with uh, uh, Thomas Edison in 1896 when uh, Ford – Edison tells Ford, your idea of using that hydrocarbon, that's a very good idea for a fuel – and then uh, Edison changes his idea, his mind, when he sees the smoke coming out of the tailpipe and decides uh, electric car doesn't work. Model T comes out, $895. It looks like the electric car is dead. Go forward a century, and the electric car uh, is back in contention. And there's a wonderful t- – two photos in the book. One is a woman charging a car in 1910, eight, 1910 and the other is the CEO of uh, – of Nissan charging a car in 2010. If you look at the picture, you'll think it's the same picture. So it, it shows you, it's like picking up a story uh, that was terminated in the middle, but I think at least that it's still early days in, in the lab. So let me just to uh, kind of bring this picture together to say that one of the things that has always impressed me about the energy business is kind of everybody knows where it's going. We know exactly what direction it's going. And then something comes from left field and it, it changes its course. They're surprised. They can be technology. They can be politics. Uh, uh, any range of different things. And suddenly we're going in a different direction. We've seen it in 2011. But what I'm hoping is that this, that this book provides perspective to understand both how our energy world came about what its components are, how they come together in a narrative way, and gives a foundation for understanding what happens in the future and preparing for that future. In the very last chapter, I talk about a man named uh, Sadi Carnot. Engineers in the room will know who he is because they know the Carnot cycle, which explains uh, uh, how steam engines work. In 1824, he laid out uh, his uh, no, his his thoughts in a paper called Reflections on the Motive power of fire. Now, it's interesting to me, he was not only a scientist and engineer, he was also a soldier. His father had been minister of war for Napoleon, and he was very interested in this, not only from a scientific point of view, but because he was convinced that Britain had bested France because of its mastery of the steam engine, and it was about sort of restoring uh, France's national power. But he wrote in this paper, Reflections on the Motive Power of Fire, that the invention of what he called heat engines using what he called combustibles was producing a great revolution for humanity. So as I wrote this book and th- thought about it and looked about it and tried to bring the thoughts together as one does when you finish a book, I, I thought, and I think you may conclude when you read the book, that the great revolution rightly describes the entire process of harnessing energy that really began in the 18th century when it was it ceased being just human labor and animal labor. It's also clear, absolutely clear, that this is a revolution that will continue into the future. And that is why that I believe that this particular quest that I write about is a quest that will never end and is a quest that should never end. Thank you. my book
0: our thanks to uh, Daniel Jurgen author of the quest for his comments here at climate one at the Commonwealth Club uh, and I'm Greg Dalton and now we'll have a conversation and then uh, pretty soon have some audience questions um, do we need to yeah okay the um, let's drill down a little bit on, on China. You, you mentioned China, and that when you wrote the prize 20 years ago, China was an energy exporter, at least an oil exporter. Right. Now it's a huge importer. Um, and, and what impact is is China having on the energy industry, and will they be able to – you write that they won't be able to preempt, basically
2: to disrupt uh, global energy surprise. Right. Um well, f- first, it is uh, it is very interesting. When Deng Xiaoping came to power, the great reformer in China, he said that you know the first stage of modernization, that the way they would f- the only way they could actually finance it was by exporting oil. So they had a pretty well developed oil industry, and they stepped on the gas, so to speak, and that f- funding was very critical for them up until about uh, 1990. Uh, the um, is, is the microphone. If I turn my head, do you lose the voice? It's okay, it's fine. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I think that the the growth of Chinese oil demand, that probably by 2020, around there, they'll be using as much oil as, as we are, particularly as we have peak demand in, in our country. And uh, kind of, if you were in their shoes, you would be concerned about uh, oil supplies. And I think if you go back four or five years, uh, their their sense of insecurity about it, because it happened very fast for them, Uh, was higher than it was today. They talked about the Malacca dilemma about depending upon imports. My sense is that they're more confident today about their ability to deal with it, uh, partly because they have the money to – they know they can buy oil. And I think we're seeing that uh, the Chinese companies are going through a lot of kind of – they're changing because not so long ago they were part of ministries, and they're sort of – both report to the government, but they're also commercial entities. Clearly, as some in this room know, that they can be uh, – they have checkbooks and uh, can be very uh, 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 aggressive in terms of seeking new resources. But I think there are two things to keep in mind. One is that all of the oil production of China outside of China is less than one super major. And two, people often lose sight that they actually are in partnership often, not always, with Western companies. If you look at them in Iraq today, they're in partnership with Western companies. So it isn't exactly the zero-sum game that people think, but I think it is very important because it could be a relationship that could become seen as a zero-sum game. You know, I hear echoes in my mind of uh, the Anglo-German naval race when I hear some of the discussions about a Chinese blue-water navy. Uh, The Chinese – certain Chinese announced that the South China Sea is a core interest Core interest is a very, as you know, is a very key term. It refers to things like Taiwan. And then other Chinese officials come out and say, well, those were not authorized statements. Uh, and it's, you know, there's a kind of fluidity there, Chinese nationalism. So I think managing this relationship with China, both at a governmental level, but also to the degree possible, keeping it on the commercial level, uh, is very important for both countries. You think that China demand can drive up energy
0: prices because their their voracious demand puts upward pressure on prices? Well,
2: the Chinese get um, very upset when you say that – that about that. But I think if you go back to – they say, what, me? No. <laughs> but if you go well, back – to sheer numbers of it. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you go back to 2004, I see that as a really pivotal year because that was the year – When OPEC met in Algiers in February and the whole concern was that the oil price was going to collapse below $20 a barrel. And then the Saudi oil minister goes to uh, China and he sees this boom and realizes this is a different picture than I thought it was going to be. And that's when the prices started to just go up. And that's when it became clear that China really was not just a provider of low-cost goods, not just this little inflation, (laughs) but it was a huge growth market. And clearly the Chinese growth – growth in India, growth in the Middle East, those factors were very, were part of this whole factor that took oil from $20 a barrel to $147 a barrel. There were other reasons too. There was disruption, there was Iraq, there was Nigeria, there's Venezuela, there was financial markets, uh, there was the belief that the world was running out of oil, all those things were there. But the, on the supply side, on the demand side, it was, we entered a different world in terms of oil demand around 2004.
0: You dismiss the idea of of peak oil, which is often bandied about and say that there is plenty of of supply. I'd like to read a quote from the chief economist at the International Energy Agency, one of the main respected uh, energy organizations for developed economies, uh, Fatih Barol, who said uh, in 2010, one day we will run out of oil. It is not today or tomorrow, but one day we will run out of oil and we will have to leave oil before oil leaves us. And we have to prepare ourselves for that today. The earlier we start, the better, because all of our economic and social system is based on oil. So to change from that will take a lot of time and a lot of money. And we should take this issue very seriously. This is not a environmentalist tree hugger. This
2: is an economist. Well, I think oil. that's a very reasonable statement. Does it? Yeah. Uh, we will run out of oil someday, uh, but I think the and when, you know
0: I, at, do you speculate
2: when? Well, uh, it's interesting. I I I have a quote from. The speaker of the Iranian Parliament, who says, you know, we know the date our oil reserves will run out, uh, you know, that he has a specific date, and that's the justification, by the way, for nuclear nuclear power in Iran. And I thought it's very interesting that, you know, sounds like somebody who believes in peak oil, but Fati's not saying that it that we've reached a halfway point and we're now on the downslope, which is generally what's associated with peak oil. I mean, we've run out of oil and I don't say this facetiously, we've run out of oil five times. The first time was in the 1880s when the head of Standard Oil, the successor to John D. Rockefeller said, I will drink every barrel of oil that you find west of the Mississippi. Then came Texas and Oklahoma, and he kind of rethought that uh, pledge and decided not to do that, uh, which was wise. Uh, there's a picture of the book of Woodrow Wilson, uh, and he says, I guess I'm going to have to walk to church now because we have gasoline-less Sundays in the United States because we're running out of oil. World War II, running out of oil. 1970s, there are people in this room who know very well that we're going to fall off the oil mountain, and production is now up 30%. So it doesn't mean that there's not a point, but I think the notion that it's going to happen so imminently, I think that belief system... Fed by other things, the increased prices, and that uh, that we haven't used up half the world's oil. We've maybe used up 20 percent of the world's oil. So I think that's that's the point. But and the other thing, and I think Fatih's thinking about that. It doesn't mean that there are not a lot of risk above ground. I mean, you just have to look at uh, what happened this week uh, with the you know the the plot that was revealed about the uh, Iranian effort. To assassinate the Saudi ambassador as a sign of the problems that are uh, in the world. So there are plenty of reasons to address it. So I think that's a, a very sensible statement.
0: One of the remarkable uh, pictures, uh, graphs in the book is the price of oil over time, and there's some spikes in the 1870s, and from the 1870s to the 1970s, it basically trades in a band between 10 and 20 dollars, and then there's some huge spikes recently. Do you see that continuing? Is is the some people say the era of cheap oil or era of easy to get oil is over and the prices will be higher in the future? I I
2: think I think that's true. That um, that you look at the scale of projects that are being done and the cost of of doing them, the complexity. You also look at the cost of the input that's going into it because of the general commodity boom. Steel is more expensive. All of the kind of inputs are more expensive. So I think that's a uh, uh, a fair statement and that there's. you know, and that the new oil that's coming in is more expensive,
0: and also just because
2: demand is rising faster than supply. Well, I don't think demand. demand uh, 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 I don't think demand is rising faster than supply, but demand is growing, and uh, we see supply continuing to grow. But you know, it's it's a race to keep up.
0: But the supply of existing oil fields is going down. And even the IEA, International Energy Agency, says uh, even if uh, new f- found proven fields come online, there still needs to be new discoveries, right, to, to, to keep right. up with Well, demand. it's
2: interesting, actually. You look at um, oil and, you know, you have certain amount and it's discovered. And people think, well, discoveries are going down. But uh, th- the U.S. Geological Service did a study, and something like 86 percent of U.S. oil reserves were not the result of – quote, discovery, but they were extensions and additions in existing oil fields. Uh, as increased you, efficiency. Increased efficiency. But as you go, uh, you know, the Permian Basin in Texas, or uh, New Mexico, was supposed to run out a long time ago, and it's still producing. And I think in the next few days we're going to read about some of the old oil fields in California that people thought were totally exhausted that have a whole new life. And But it's technology. It's I think that there's a tendency to think technology stagnates, that it doesn't that where you are is where you're going to be but in fact the technology the industry is basically run by scientists and engineers and basically kind of continuing to push the technology
0: if you're just joining us our guest today at the Commonwealth Club is Daniel Jurgen author of the quests uh, you mentioned biofuels that they've been harder to than many people realize take taken longer uh, what do you see as the as a the, uh, the IEA I believe one of their people said that uh by 2050, 25% of transport demand could be biofuels. Is that high or low? 2050. 25% by 2050. That was the executive director of the IEA. Piece of
2: cake. No.
0: You <laughs> heard 2050, I'm, I'm willing You're to.
2: Heard <laughs> That's a safe prediction. No, I think that uh, that there's. Uh, uh, I'm not saying that cake will be a source of biofuels. I'm saying that uh, could be. We yeah. Have but, cord- that, this but it certainly seems that uh, although the electric car is now in the starring role, and biofuels that was the starring role has sort of moved off to the side. I think that the commitment of uh, research on that continues in companies and universities and research centers, and that uh, you have the, the entrance of biology into energy. And I think that, uh, you know, I'd say, if you're sort of talking about where can the surprises come from, it can be when, when, significant breakthroughs that allow scale production of that kind of biofuel, that's one of the potential ones. And
0: that's the hard part. There's lots of bathtub experiments, but getting things to get to an industrial scale, people in the energy business, outside the energy business, don't realize how big the scale is. Yeah,
2: that's, exactly, that's one of the things that I tried to convey in the quest, is just, it's just the scale, It's, it's so big, and there's kind of, it tends to be governed by what I call the law of long, law of long lead times, even, you know, it can be 15 years even to bring on a new major new oil field or to technology. So we have a scenario, uh, our most ambitious uh, optimistic scenario for the electric car. This is the most optimistic scenario. says by 2020, it could be 3% of of the world global automobile fleet. 2030, If it really gains traction, it would be a much bigger number. But even the automobile fleet takes time to turn over.
0: Is that 3% of new sales or 3% of the total fleet?
2: 3% of the fleet, 10% of the sales. Have you driven one? Uh, Yes. Was it fun? It was fast. (laughs) Yeah.
0: uh, Yeah, but... Electric vehicles require a whole new changeover in well, some new infrastructure, a lot, a lot of technology breakthroughs. One of the interesting things about biofuels is there are a category of biofuels that are called drop-in fuels. They can go in existing cars without existing modif- any modification, and they can go in existing pumps and pipelines and refineries, so no one has to
2: make huge capital investment. Well that would be, that would be, you know, if you sort of make a list of the holy grails, that's one of them. And certainly the Department of Defense is very interested in dropping biofuels for meeting its fuel needs. And uh, uh, the Secretary of Navy has talked about a great green fleet. And you can certainly see that money is continuing to go into that effort.
0: And what kind of – we've had uh, Ray Mabus, the well, Secretary of the Navy, here talk about uh, 50 percent by 2020 on shore and, and on, on sea. What role could the military play in terms of being a – uh, a supplier uh, creating demand, perhaps well, the, driving well, the, down the price? Yeah,
2: well, the two things. One is its research budget, and uh, uh, which, you know, all budgets are going to be cut, but that budget will still be there. And secondly, as what you're saying is creating a market and demand, I would say 50 percent by 2020. That's nine years from now. That's uh,
0: pretty ambitious. Now, he includes nuclear, and, and some of the – you know, a lot of the, the ships and uh, submarines right. would be nuclear. But even the vehicles and, and on shore, that would be a huge change, pretty right, ambitious. Yeah. If you're just joining us, our guest today at uh, Climate One is the yeah. And Let me say, I mean, one you're of here. the
2: really interesting characters in the book, I almost feel I could draw a line demographically across the room uh, that those above that line would know exactly who Hyman Rickover is, and those below the line uh, would say, who? But uh, he's a totally – fascinating character, uh, 62 years on active service in the Navy, drove the other admirals crazy with the exasperation. But Jimmy Carter called him the greatest engineer of all times. And he was both not only the father of the nuclear Navy and did it in this record time, but also more than anybody else, the father of nuclear power. And, uh, you know, when you actually look at the rollout of nuclear power in the United States, it actually, you know, it happened really over a course of a couple decades.
0: One of the other uh, fuels that, that's out there is natural gas. And how do you see that? There's a great new supply of natural gas in the United States. It's undercutting a lot of competing fuels. How do you see that playing out?
2: Well, I think that, um, you know, you one might describe what's happened with shale gas as the biggest energy innovation of the last two or three decades. It uh, came as a, you know, sort of burst on the scene in 2008, but, it, you know, decades in, indicated in in preparation, and obviously there's environmental questions around it that have to be addressed. Public trust has to be addressed. But as I said, it's 30% of our production now, and, and bringing down the cost of electricity in different parts of the country, bringing industries that thought they would never be investing in the United States again back to the United States, investing literally billions of dollars, creating, I think, uh, you know, several hundred thousand jobs at a time when jobs, 9.1% unemployment, and, you know, the report that I was part of that we did for President Obama on shale gas in August said that, you know, that you know, there are a series of environmental issues, but these issues can be managed and, uh, and best practices and best technology and appropriate regulation and transparency and disclosure would give us the basis to go ahead, but need to address water, need to address air quality, and need to address community impact.
0: And do you think that natural gas will be used to generate electricity or as a transportation fuel?
2: Well, I would say at this point that I would see it much more as uh, generating electricity, that uh, that would be its main use. I know there are others who believe it would be used direct, and including generating electricity that could go into electric cars. uh, There are others who would say that it's going to go directly into transportation, uh, but that requires, again, a lot of uh, infrastructure. V- infrastructure and redoing the whole vehicle yeah. fleet, et cetera. Yeah, and that gas is – I mean, I certainly see among the mentality of the power – CEOs in the power industry and this leadership where they were even skeptical two years ago of shale gas because they said we've been through it before, promise of cheap gas, we commit to it, price goes up, we're in terrible situation and it's happened. Uh, you know, people in this room have uh, experienced that. Uh, I think now the industry says, you know – this really is diff- – I hate to use a phrase, but this time is different, that this really is an abundant uh, source.
0: We're going to put a uh, microphone right where our photographer is sitting and uh, invite you to come up and uh, join the conversation with some comments or, 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 or questions. Uh, and while we get that going, uh, our guest today is, is uh, author – Daniel Jurgen, we're discussing energy at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, corn was the, the fuel of the day for some time. Uh, how do you see the corn ethanol playing out now? That seems to be uh, less in favor.
2: Yeah, I think – I mean, it's, it's kind of locked in in the sense that uh, – Some policy mandates. Yeah, play policy out. mandates, which is the way we tend to do things in the country and sort of pass on costs and so forth. But it is uh, – it's almost 10 percent of our uh, gasoline supply in terms of volume already. So we see that uh, at work. It's interesting, though, if you go back to 2005, 2006, it was such enthusiasm about it. And I have a quote in the book from George W. Bush, who uh, expressed, you know, said, I know people are surprised at this guy from Texas whose friends are, you know, in the, you know, in the oil business and so forth. Why is he pushing ethanol so aggressively? And he, in a small meeting in the White House, he said the reason he was doing it was to get, um, Hugo Chavez of Venezuela and, uh, Ahmadinejad of Iran as he had to use his, his words out of the Oval Office. In other words, it was geopolitical, uh, as much as, uh, energy oriented. It's a domestic source
0: of energy, yeah. energy security. Let's have our audience question. Yes, sir.
2: Uh, Dan, my question is about energy policy. The energy policy of the United States, in particular, over the last 50 years, has really been maximize demand, minimize supply, and buy the rest from the people who hate us the most. doesn't matter which administration, Republican or Democrat. We have the smartest energy secretary we've ever had. Is there any chance of a rational energy policy, a thoughtful, farsighted one in the United States, a carbon tax, for example, or, or any element of change that would rationalize our energy policy? Well, I think it is um – as a kind of student of it, it is hard to have a single rational energy policy because we're a big country, many different regions, different points of view, different interests. So one person's rational energy policy may not be another person's rational energy policy. But we have elements of it. I think uh, what we've done on efficiency, uh, going to 54-mile-per-gallon cars is a very important step. And I think that uh, well, I ran a task force on energy R&D during the Clinton administration, this kind of volatility in spending on research and development is, is a bad thing. And it, it is, it's a bad thing for science. It's a bad thing for the country. And I think we need it at a higher and sustained level. So there are elements of it. But I would say right now, you know, looking at domestic politics, the likelihood uh, of saying, you know, a, a carbon tax is extremely unlikely.
0: There's a chart uh, that's been uh, on the Internet that shows uh, United States federal R&D investment, and there's two bulges. One is the space race in the 60s and, and the war on cancer and health. And energy is just this little sliver, and there's a little – it rises after the oil shocks in the 70s. But it's, it, compared to where we put other research and development,
2: it's just a tiny piece of – Yeah, that. I mean, in our, in our report to Obama in August, we said, you know – government ought to put some money, R&D money, into addressing these environmental issues around shale gas uh, to assure best practices and new technology. And it's been in, you know, I testified to the Senate two weeks ago, and uh, Senator, uh, one of the senators, uh, actually a Democratic Senator, not a Republican, was saying, why should we possibly spend money on that? Why is that useful? And you say, well, this will bring an enormous return to the, to the country. The lowest point in R&D expenditure, interestingly, in real terms, was in about 1998. And it happened to coincide with the point at which in real terms, U.S. gasoline prices were lower than they'd ever been. And so it it does very much correlate correlate with that. And, um, And that was also the point when the maximum level of absolute passion uh, for and love for SUVs reached its maximum point. So, you know, it just shows you how powerful price is. Let's have a next question for Daniel Jurgen. Mr. Jurgen could
0: you please comment on the fact that 20 years after the collapse of the Soviet Union, there is still no legal agreement in allocating the $12 trillion of hydrocarbon resources around the Caspian Sea between the five littoral states. And also the role that, some oil companies and external powers are playing in creating a very dangerous situation.
2: Well, what's the dangerous situation? In
0: uh, in the Caspian Sea. But you... Well, by competing or basically making different agreements with the different nations and the fact that those countries, again, they're ruled by non-democratic governments and their interest is going to, at some point, collide with each other. Yeah.
2: Well, that's a complex question with many elements to it. The Caspian uh, the issue is, is it Caspian or lake or a sea? And if it's a lake, then, uh, then all, as I recollect, all the countries jointly control it. And if it's a sea, each country has its de- 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 demarcated uh, uh, ownership. And, um, Iran would like it to be a lake, which would give it a say over everything. I can't remember what Russia's position on it is now. Clearly, Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, and Azerbaijan want it to be a C in proceeding on that. Uh, I don't, um, you know, I think that the um, investment in that region, uh, I mean, clearly those governments are, you you know, uh, authoritarian governments to one degree or another. Uh, I think it's also still the early days, but I think that the resources, the development of the resources, first of all, important part of diversification of global energy supplies. Uh, Secondly, it has solidified the independence of what used to be called newly independent countries. And thirdly, it does have the resources for economic development because they were, you know, Azerbaijan was an extremely poor country even up till five or six or seven years ago. So I think on balance, it's been beneficial Clearly, Iran has its own objectives in that region, and uh, that's part of the uh, the kind of regional tensions that extend into the Persian Gulf.
0: Let's have our next audience please. question, please. Hi, Dan. I had a question about a single word. Uh, it's a word that I first heard about four years ago, and I never thought it would turn into the scandal that it has now. So without asking a particular question, just wanted your reaction to Solindra.
2: Solyndra. <laughs> uh, well, I guess it's, it's still unfolding in terms of, of what it is. And, uh, and it's, you know, to go back to the bigger point, I think there's a very important role in terms of research and development. There's going to be lasting, uh, you know, controversy about the question of whether you provide uh, loans to specific companies. Obviously, that was done as part of the stimulus program. I think, uh, you know, I think the facts speak for themselves in terms – of it and what's going to happen, and it's still – obviously, it's still playing out in terms of its significance, Um, you know, and the emails are continuing to come out, so I think it's it's too early to kind of make a definitive comment on it. Um, I think what it does do is it makes it much harder to have any kind of new stimulus program in general uh, because I think it just raises questions about the ability of governments to make – Choices in that kind of area.
0: They're, yeah, they're, ultimately they're going to be influenced by politics.
2: Well, or, you know, or influenced, or just you know may not have the same investment acumen as uh, government's not c- yeah. equipped to, make, to yeah. make those choices. And they were you know doing it under great time pressure, um, you know, and of course the and then in the course of it all the uh, the the um, solar industry went from kind of high prices to low prices, and and going back to what we saw, we saw the Chinese companies become very competitive. We saw the major German company that was the beneficiary go into a terrible downspin. I was very struck. I talked to the head of one of the Chinese solar companies who is uh, at the forefront of basically driving down costs, and I just thought his comment to me was very interesting. He said, when I was growing up, uh, and as a young man, he wanted to come study in the United States. He said, I wanted to leave, live the American dream. And he said, now I want to leave, live the Chinese dream. And I thought, you know, the world does change.
0: The time has come. Let's have our next audience question for Daniel Jurgen. Hi, Dan. Um, I was curious. Uh, I've heard a lot of talk from economists about the fact that the green economy has not provided the jobs that it was supposed to. Um, And I was wondering what your feelings were about the unlevel playing field that um, oil companies have with externalized costs and subsidies that they receive for oil exploration and whether or not the green economy would be a more effective job creator if the playing field were more level.
2: Well, I think that um, the subsidies question is very, I think, is very complex, and it really depends upon definition and I would say to the renewable industry, the green economy, not to base their um, – not to base their arguments upon, you know, saying the subsidies are over there. And I'll give you one example. Uh, I read a paper that talked about subsidies to the oil industry, and it said that the largest single subsidy, almost half, was a foreign tax credit. And then I looked at the footnote for that, and the footnote for that it only had one footnote. It was a book called The Prize. And <laughs> I had written the book. And the only thing is, my argument was 180 degrees different from that. So I think you know the foreign tax credit is uh, is all industries get it, and it's part of being competitive in the world. So I think this the that side gets more subsidies than this side is not a not not a good way uh, to make the argument. I think the uh, the green economy jobs. It is true that China has an advantage in manufacturing, and so you have solar. Uh, and, you know, it's showing up in in solar. Uh, Jobs are being created, but I think the thing we'll probably see in the next month or so uh, is that, in fact, over the last three or four years, and this seems counterintuitive, a lot more jobs have actually been created in the conventional energy industry uh, than in in the green industry. It doesn't mean that that's going to be the case five years or ten years from now when those industries are much more mature. And and I should just say that I think – I'm on the advisory board at MIT's Energy Initiative, and you just see the kind of scientific, uh, technical creativity that's going into trying to solve energy and environmental problems uh, across that campus, and that's just one campus. I was down at UCSB, University of California, Santa Barbara, their Institute of Energy Efficiency. You see so many people working on it, so I think that is going to generate a lot more economic activity and more jobs. It just hasn't come with the speed that seemed to be kind of promised in 2009.
0: And also, by some accounting, a, a bus driver who drives a natural gas bus is considered a green worker. Right, so, you know, so yes. That's on, why, yeah, yeah what's these account, ca- account- Yes, yeah, the accounting. Uh, let's have our next audience question for Daniel Jurgen. I just wanted to follow up on the peak oil discussion. Um, Fatih Birol actually came out in about March or April on a catalyst program on Australia and put what he projected as the maximum geological potential at 96 million barrels a day, which is – putting a reasonably near near date on the, the peak. Just wondering, uh, for people trying to sort of sort out the different opinions out there, can you clarify whether there's like a difference in opinion on what you see right now uh, on the ground in the oil industry or is it simply a difference in opinion on what can come later? Well,
2: it is that those who say that the endowment is 2 trillion barrels and those who say the endowment is 5 trillion or 6 trillion barrels – and Fatih Birol, the International Energy Agency, he was using his report that they did upon that. It was actually based upon a great deal of it was based upon data from our, our company, which collects data on all those fields, uh, 87,000 oil fields and 4.7 million oil wells. And the data to us in answer to the question is that it is, um, we just, it's not an emotional thing, it's just an analytic conclusion that the resource base is uh, is greater, and that technology keeps opening doors. But it's also to say it doesn't mean that it's a done deal or it's, it's going to happen. We would use a higher number than Fati does. Great respect for him, and we have an ongoing dialogue together. So you do uh, ask a very good question, you know, well, what is the argument about? And the argument comes down to kind of what is the – not the reserves, but what's the recoverable resource? And that's determined by geology, but it's also determined by economics, and it's also determined by technology. And your question before, at $60 a barrel oil, if that's your base, or $80, uh, you have more oil than you would have at $20 a barrel.
0: Sure. We're discussing energy with the expert and author Daniel Jurgen of the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's have another audience question. Um
1: there have been a lot of stops and starts to the clean energy
0: technologies, and the most poignant example might be your example of the electric vehicle taking a break for 100 years and now finally coming back. My question for you is, what advice do you have to people dedicating their careers to clean energy technologies in light of this stop-and-start nature?
2: Right. Well, I think there are two, a couple of aspects to it. Uh, That's why I – one reason I'm so – feel so strongly about the need for an appropriately, you know, significant sustained commitment to the basic uh, energy to energy research and development. So exactly that, uh, you know, young people can make a career in there and not have to, you know, in the middle of it suddenly find that grant money disappears and has to spend all their time scrounging for money instead of doing research. And that's a policy question, and it's certainly something that, I urge to the greatest degree possible. I think for um, those, and uh, if you move into the sort of business, it is cyclical. Uh, There are the cyclical factors. You have cheap gas. The other thing is that um, it's a moving target. So the companies who are leaders at uh, Qcells, the German company I mentioned, and it was the star of uh, solar energy, and then it gets bypassed, and so I don't know which, which part of the industry are you, are you in? Are you? Yeah, so. Research and development. Yeah, yeah, so, so. Well, we don't want you to spend all your time writing grant proposals. We want you to be doing research instead, and, and, uh, so that part of it. But I think for companies, it's, uh, it's, it's very, it's very competitive, and maybe that's characteristic of a still relatively young industry that's developing fast.
0: And one people would say that one thing that China does well is that they sent long-term policies and have a clearer, more consistent policy direction, whereas this country zigs and zags and renews investment tax credits for a short period of time. It's really hard for business to plan. And uh, we, Jim Rogers was here, the CEO of Duke Energy, and said, you know, Washington thinks in two-, four-, and six-year cycles, and energy thinks people have to think in –
2: Yeah, it's it's, yeah. You have exactly. You have this cycle. You have a political cycle, and then you have the cycle of industrial and technical development,
0: and they're entirely different. Let's have our next audience question.
1: Dr. Jurgen, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, I've waited nearly 20 years to ask this question. Oh boy! (laughs) (laughs) Better be good. (laughs) You know, most people are concerned about that we're going to run out of oil. I think that the issue that I'm concerned about is that we're going to run out of sulfur because sulfur is a integral component to water processing, and because there is a nexus between energy and uh, water, that relationship is inseparable. And I don't see the anyone in government or the industry. Uh, or even the scientific community, seeing this relationship. And so I'm, I would really like to see your – or hear uh,
2: Thank you Well, I'm afraid that I'm in that category myself, uh, that I really don't have uh, kind of knowledge and expertise. I look around, and I don't know if I should call on somebody else in the audience who might be able to address it. But uh, I'm afraid I don't have an answer for you. So it's, I'm not familiar with it. Let's have so our next audience
0: for uh, Daniel Jurgen. We're getting close, so we'll try to have a few quick questions and quick answers, and we'll uh, – yes. yes, sir. Okay.
2: <clears throat> so if we were to compare – hi, Dan. How you doing? Oh, I'm okay. how uh, are you? If we were to compare the two transportation fuels of electricity and biofuel, and you had a set amount of land on which to either generate uh, electricity photovoltaically or grow some type of biofuel, uh, how would you compare those two in terms of – turning that into actual transportation fuels? Uh, I don't have an answer at th- this point to that. I know that people are, you know, as we move towards electric vehicles on the road and so forth, people are starting to look at it, trying to look at a at the whole cycle in terms of costs and inputs and sort of things. And, again, people also do that on biofuels. And, um, you know, as you find, the analyses tend to be very controversial, uh, including – uh, energy input versus energy output. So I think it's a fruitful area for research, and it sounds like maybe you're going to work on it. So, Let's have our next audience question. Yes, uh, Dan. Uh, one of the
0: elephants in the room as far as energy in the United States is coal, and roughly 50 percent of our electric power comes from coal, not so much from California, but for the rest of the country. And I wondered what your perspectives are as you go down – through the decades as where coal fits into the energy picture or whether shale gas might displace coal in a significant
2: way. Yeah. Well, I think that it partly goes back to the first question from uh, Peter Schwartz about uh, uh, energy policy because, of course, the coal-producing states have a very different attitude towards uh, an energy policy than, you know, a state like California. Uh, you know, I think gas is going to replace coal. We'll see coals now, what's 50, as you say, going down to 45, I think will decline. A new talked to a guy the other day who thought he built the last new coal plant in the United States, a very efficient one, uh, but it's going to be very difficult to build new coal plants. And so, on the other hand, we're a big producer of coal, and so I think we're going to have an ever-increasing number of rail cars uh, going from coal-producing states to ports on the west coast and shipping coal to Asia, so I think uh, that's going to be a growing export business for us.
0: And is coal replace uh, is gas replacing coal because it's just cheaper, or cheaper and cleaner, or is it market economics or policy? That's
2: well, I think it's uh, it's first. I think for utilities and anybody for utility knows a quandary that utilities face about what do you build, what do you, what generation, new generation do you commit to. And uh, but I think that it's recognized it's pretty hard to commit to a new coal powered plant, whether and it's partly policy and, and environmental opposition. But on the other hand, that gas at these prices, at least, is competitive uh, in the broad range with 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 coal. And so I think natural gas, along with wind, but natural gas becomes a, a default fuel for uh, electric when we need new electric generation. And because We may be at peak demand in terms of oil, but we're probably not in peak demand in terms of electricity. Our own estimates is that electricity demand will increase by about 18%, 18, 20% over the next 10 years. And the reason is going back to Ronald Reagan and the continuing electrification of society and the fact that in your homes, you have all these gadgets that you didn't have 10 or 20 years ago, starting with microwaves up to your uh, iPhone now, and, you know, we're, we have a more and more need to generate gadget watts uh, to feed your gadgets. And so uh, that adds to the question of, of how, what kind of mix do we have in electric power? But I think, obviously, so I think gas is the default fuel there along with, with wind. Let's have the next audience question.
1: Uh, We've talked uh, almost exclusively tonight about uh, the supply side, uh, geopolitics, uh, different fuels, and so on. Uh, But you seem to be an acute observer of personalities as well. So I'd like to pivot a little bit and ask you to think about uh, demand management uh, and human behavior and how that might factor into spreading out the resource over a longer period of time.
2: Well, I think that's um, critical. And uh, I really came into the field of energy Uh, doing research made possible by Mason Wilrich when he was giving foundation grants, uh, research grants, uh, to uh, work on uh, energy efficiency. And that's what really motivated me because it seems it's such a large energy resource. And you realize it's it's shaped by, what we do is shaped by technology, by prices, by regulations, but by human psychology. And so in the quest, I have a discussion of that and talk about, and I may not be pronouncing it, probably not pronouncing it right, but a Japanese word, motenai, which means too precious to waste. And uh, it's part of the mindset. And I do feel and encourage that I see, I think I see, that energy efficiency has a, a broad support across the spectrum. And I can remember earlier years when it was very contentious. It seems to me there's co- consensus around it. Uh, but it does take a different kind of, uh, attitude. Uh, Dow Chemical, which is, over the last few years, has reduced its energy per unit of product by about 25%. Uh, the, the CEO talks about you, you gotta get it into your mindset or your, into your DNA. And, uh, so that goes very much, as you say, it's not only technical, but it is what people think and it is behavior.
0: We have time for one last question. I'd like to remind you that Mr. Jurgen will sign some books outside afterwards, and encourage people to say hello to someone uh, that maybe you don't know after this to share ideas and what you thought about the comments today. Uh, let's have uh, last audience question. I
2: was wondering if you felt that the uh, global supply of lithium would be uh, an impediment to the full realization of electric transportation. Um, again, I don't. You know, I haven't studied it. Certainly, people were quite worried about that. Uh, Couple of years ago, I don't know if I, it seems to be less concern about it, but um, you know it is still very early stages in it. And obviously, you know there are very large deposits, for instance, in a country like Bolivia. But there are other less high-quality sources in Australia and other places. But um, you know I think it's a, actually a very interesting question to look at what would the supply chain. If we did get to 10 percent of new cars being uh, electric by 2020, it's a very good question. What would the supply system look like? And I think some who have looked at it do share the kind of concern that, that you have expressed uh, that's inherent in your question.
0: There's a lot in Afghanistan as well, and there's also people who talk about post-lithium car batteries. that may not be right. – lithium is not the only uh, exactly. game in terms of – health. Let's uh, leave our thanks to Daniel Jurgen, author of The Quest, for his comments here today at the Commonwealth Club. Thank you, everybody.